if we um, did nothing but learned how to calm down and quiet down, of course, it could be transformative in our lives, no question about it. And so much of what we do with, is mindfulness of, of breathing or we take some meditation subject and um, bring our mindfulness to that. And one of the things it does, of course, is over time, is uh, ostensibly, is we learn to uh, quiet down some. Of course, Vipassana, where Vipassana means insight meditation, is a lot more than just learning to be uh, still and quiet. The mindfulness and the tranquility or the calm or the settlements is in service of the insight. And the insight's in the service of what's sometimes called liberation. So there's a big question, what does that mean to live in a way that's free or to be liberated? Or enlightened. It gets talked. That gets talked about in a lot of different ways, of course, um, depending on the tradition that you're in, practice in, and different people's views about that, or different people's experience and understanding about that. One way to think about the insight is what is what does it mean to have insight? We're talking about actually seeing more clearly, if you will, into kind of the way it's often said is into the true nature of things. That's the way it's often talked about. One way that I want to talk about tonight and the next time I come here, so I'm going to do it in two parts, is we can think of this liberation through insight as a transforming how we, uh, our perception of the world. And that uh, we actually live a lot out of uh, misperceptions that we don't even notice often about things. And so I want to address that a little bit. And I want to start with, um, well, first let me, let me back up for a moment. There are two things I'm going to want to talk about. I want to talk about limiting beliefs, and I want to talk about what are sometimes called um, afflictive emotions. So tonight I want to focus on, the, on limiting beliefs, and then the next time, um, assuming things don't, sometimes things change and something else needs to be talked about. but. Uh, my plan is, to, my intention is to talk about next time afflictive emotions. So I want to start with this quote, which I've read here a number of times, one of my favorite quotes. And just beginning of it, this is from a teacher uh, who's not in the Buddhist tradition named Hari Das. Some of you know him. He's in Santa Cruz. I believe he's still alive. He was my teacher back in the early and mid 70s uh, when I was kind of in, I was in the Hindu yoga world before I, kind of moved, before I moved over into the Buddhist world. Um, and he says something very interesting. He says, our lives are based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impair our ability to function. That's an intense statement. I'll just read it again. There's more. I'll come back to it. There's more. But our lives are based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impair our ability to function. Now, I'll bet if you ask most people, they would say, what is he talking about? That's ridiculous. I see reality. I mean, what's real? I'm here. There's me. There's you. We're in the room. What, what, what am I out of touch with here? This guy's crazy. Right? So um, I want to explore that a little bit, and particularly um, this what I mean about limiting beliefs, because uh, I'll explain what I mean by the term. In a, in a moment, but uh, we all have what I'm calling limiting beliefs. Every one of us as human beings. Every one of us here has it. I have them. Our, what they look like for each of us will be different. Uh, limiting beliefs are any... A limiting belief can be a thought, so it can be verbal, it can be in words, but it can also be um, just unconscious assumptions that we live out of that we don't even notice. So for example, and this example I'm going to use is not a limiting belief, but it's just an example of what I mean by some assumption I have. So I'm sitting here cross-legged on the floor and I have, if you will, a belief or an assumption that the floor is solid and that I can get up and walk across it and I won't just fall through, right? So, and it's probably 
that's a, it's, I don't consider that a limiting belief, but it's just an assumption. It's, it's kind of, I don't, I'm not aware of it, I don't think about it. But it actually is an assumption I have. If I did think about it, I would say, well, yes, I do have that, I assume it's true. And because of that, I act in certain ways. Meaning, I just, I'll walk across it. If I thought it was a hole in the ground, I wouldn't walk across it, I'd walk around it. So that's just an example of an assumption or a belief. Right? That particular one doesn't, hopefully doesn't cause us any trouble. Matter of fact, it's a useful assumption to make. Um, limiting beliefs are thoughts, attitudes, or conscious or unconscious seen or sometimes unknown and unseen assumptions we have about ourselves and about the world that we take for granted just as much as I do that this floor is solid, but that actually cause us problems that, that, that affect the way we live and act in ways that don't serve us well. That's what I'm calling a limiting belief. It's not a freeing belief, it's a limiting belief. Um, so one way to think about Dharma teaching is, is that it's a way to, so a limiting belief I would say is um, also a misperception. It's a misperception. Because when I'm using the term limiting belief, for example, so for example, if I um, um, say I hurt my knee and I can't run, I would not call that, it, 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 is, it is some, it's a limiting condition in my body can't run. But I wouldn't call it a limiting belief because it's just, it's not limiting me in a way that's kind of out of touch with the reality of things. It is, it's just the reality of things. So yes, it's a limitation. When I'm using the term limiting belief, I'm specifically talking about um, misperceptions that we take to be real and then we live out of them as if they're real. So going back to Haridasa's quote, this is he says, uh, our lives are based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us, that I would, I'm using the term limiting beliefs, that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impair our ability to function. So that's what I'm referring to as a limiting belief. The whole Dharma could be thought of, this is not the words, traditional words of the Buddha, so I'm just, just my own words, could be thought of as freeing ourselves from limiting beliefs or misperceptions about the way things are. The whole Dharma. The whole teaching on selflessness, which I'm actually going to touch on tonight, is a teaching about bring, giving a clear perception about who and what we are as beings. Right? So we'll come back to that. So what are some examples of some limiting beliefs. I want to name a few possible examples and then we can, I want to encourage each of us to kind of reflect, you probably know some of your limiting beliefs, but reflect about what they are because when we start to become more aware and get in touch with them, um, we can start to be more free around them. One thing I've, um, uh, in the days when I was very active teaching in the prisons, I would go in and often I would ask the question, especially when new people would come to the group, and I'd say, is it possible to be free in prison? There were people there doing life without the possibility of parole. So, and of course sometimes people would bring up a lot of, sometimes people would get kind of angry, well, who are, you know, you're coming in here from the outside, you're leaving in two hours, you know, we're stuck in here, you know. But I was, so you have to be careful about, about it, but I, I was suggesting that there's a way of thinking about being free, which yet maybe you can't physically be free to do whatever or go wherever you want in prison. But is it possible to be? To, is there another kind of freedom? Freedom of in the mind, so our minds aren't shackled, that are not not dependent on circumstances. When we go into, we were just talking about the work we're starting to do, and it's that we've been doing this last year, working in the schools. One of the things we talk about with the kids, we don't actually speak in this exact language the way we are here, but we're trying to teach them about just some mindfulness, and hopefully, yes, they, they learn to be more still and quiet. And, and then the whole, another piece 
that's equally or more important is to have start being more aware about you know aware of their bodies aware of what's going on in their minds and their hearts aware of their surrounding aware of how they act and interact with their environments rather than being on automatic pilot and caught up in things to actually be able to take a step back not a step back in the sense of disconnecting from or being disassociated from not removing ourselves from our experience no we're staying connected with our experience but a step back in the way that we can start to instead of being just completely caught up in it to start to have some awareness about what's going on right? and what happens is kids can then start to notice among other things some of possibly some of their ways that they tend to view things that may or may not serve them well you start to see the ones that serve you well also and can maybe hopefully start to make some shifts so what are some examples of some limiting beliefs I'm just going to throw a few out um, you know a limiting belief would be um, um, nobody loves me or no one would love me that's a limiting belief lots of people have that kind of limiting. I'm not lovable and it, if you have that limiting belief, you may at times have words or images, thoughts coming. But a lot of times it's, it's, it may be the same kind of assumption we have that the floor is solid, that you don't even notice it's there. It's just kind of, it's like we don't notice air. Or they talk about fish don't know, wouldn't notice water. You're just in it. It's just your natural assumption about the way things are. And you take it to be real. And then we live and we interact with other people. So if I think that nobody, I'm not lovable, that could manifest in a lot of ways. One of the ways, you know, I could imagine I wouldn't necessarily be so open and free to connect with people. I might hold myself in more. As a result of holding myself in, I might come across as either shy or maybe aloof or disconnected, which might reinforce that people don't tend to connect with me, which reinforces the people. You know, it's, it's, it's one of these self-fulfilling situations, just in that example. So that would be just one example. That, if, And it's a limiting belief. It's just a belief. It's just an assumption we have about ourselves. It may be true that, you know, if I actually look in my life, I don't have a lot of examples of people loving me. And maybe I have a lot of examples of being rejected or not accepted. So that, that may be true. But to actually say, I'm not lovable as, as a person who I am, you know, that's a whole piece that we take on ourselves. And so it colors our perception. It's a misperception. And when we don't see it, we don't, we don't even know it. We think we take it to be real. So no one would love me. Uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not okay is a limiting belief. I can't do whatever. So, for example, I'll share a limiting belief I have. So many of you here know I'm writing a Dharma book that's going to come out in December, published by Shambhala, on the topic of samadhi and jhana. And um, now, I have a belief, it's true, I have a limiting belief that I'm sharing with you now that um, I can't write a book. <laughs> that's a limiting belief I have what's interesting then is in this particular example and, I, and I'm sure there's plenty of examples where my limiting beliefs do stop me but in this one it didn't stop me it's, it just makes me real uncomfortable uh, <laughs> to write a book so it just you know brings up a lot of stuff um, it's also an interesting example because in the one I happen to choose an example where it didn't stop me and it's happening I actually think the book's coming out everybody who chooses to read it will have to make their own decision but I actually think it came out uh, pretty good I actually feel pretty good about it when I look at it I think you know this is a good donor book <laughs> I really think so and it doesn't stop my limiting belief <laughs> that I still <laughs> feel like shit about it. Excuse <laughs> my language, I'm on the tape here, but, uh, you know. But uh, can you save your 
your thought until, until the end so you don't lose it. Because I want to hear. We're going to have some, we're going to have some discussion time. Now, in this example, this is actually a good example I just thought of because it's a, it's a real good example of a limiting belief, but it's also what, where I was heading to this is that um, when we can start to uh, become more aware about these, there's a number of strategies we can have to start being free from them. And one of them is then we start to have some more freedom and choice in what we're going to do. Back in the days, I used to talk with Eric about, uh, he's an old rock climber from way back, and I'm an old rock climber from way back too. And um, in my day, I was a decent climber. I was a, I was a pretty solid 5'11 climber. You know, 20 years ago, that was respectful. Still today, I mean. I would have. You know, you know. So I was a decent climber. I've done a bunch of big walls. I spent multi-days. I was, a, I was a, like a decent climber in my day. Not the best, but I was pretty good. Um, and I had a lot of limiting beliefs more tied in with self-esteem around, you know, comparing myself to others and, Watching what people did, of course, you can't see what's going on inside of them if they're afraid or whatever. But they're just up there. But you know, I could feel all my own fears and everything, and I just thought, well, I just can't climb like everybody else climbs. And what I noticed is there were times when I'd be aware of that and I would go do it anyway, and then there were lots of times when it just stopped me. It just stopped me. There were times when I'd be on a climb when, say, fear would come up. I don't know. Fear is not really a limiting belief. It's more of an afflictive emotion, what we'll talk about next time. But a lot of fear would come up. And when I was not, didn't have my mindfulness, my awareness of what was happening, it would stop me. You know, I'd be, I would be in a position where it's called being run out, where I was kind of, from the last place my rope was hooked into something, I was kind of far out. And if I fell, I would fall a certain amount. I mean, even if I felt comfortable that the rope would catch me and I wasn't actually in any danger, I would get scared and I would back off and just, it really would stop me. And there'd be other times where that would happen. Of course, there was the times when you, no fear comes up at all and you just kind of go and that's, that's fine too. That's more pleasant. But in the times when the fear would come up and I would see it and I would make a choice to go. To, I think I can make this move that I'm not... And, and I'm just going to go anyway and, and just do it in the face of the fear. So that's when you, you know, by seeing it, I would start to have more choices. So um, what we need are a couple of things, I think. And some of you will have some discussion time in a bit, and maybe you, some of you may have, you know, some things you want to add to this too. A big piece of it, the first piece of it, like we always say, is we, it depends upon the mindfulness. This is why the mindfulness is so important, right? Being aware of what's going on. And especially as we learn to steady the mind and get some more concentration, we're able to see, you know, the image that's often used is peeling the onion layer after layer starts to reveal. And we're able to even see more and more that we weren't even aware of before. So not only are we more aware in the moment, but layer upon layer reveals itself that we didn't know and didn't see. You know, for a lot of um, years in my life, I didn't realize uh, how much anger I had in me. In general, I don't view myself, I wouldn't label myself as an angry person, but um, definitely there's that place in it that can get triggered sometimes and a lot of anger comes up and stuff from my childhood and a lot of stuff can come up and it's like, wow, where, where's this coming from? And so that's a place that needs some exploration, right? It has had some exploration. But I didn't even notice it before. It was there, I was getting mad, but I just somehow, if you'd ask me, I'd say, well, I'm not that, I don't, I don't really have that much anger. But there was plenty of times when it would come up. And over the years, starting to really see that, wow, I've got some anger in there. Anger issues that need to be worked on. So that's one level of starting to just be aware of what's going on with us more. So if we can look for these limiting beliefs, um, I really think um, that's the first step. And then they may still be roaring full blast in the moment. But at least we've got the first handle on it, which is... Um, so it's like if I'm on the rock climb, using that example, and if I'm really terrified... I'm still kind of in the grip of the, the belief. It's pretty strong. It's going to be harder to deal with it than if um, 
maybe as a little fear, right? If I'm really in terror. If I'm in a room full of people and it's, um, I'm so afraid of connecting or coming up and talking to someone that I might be interested to come up like here when we take our break or before and after the, the group meets, right? Oftentimes people hang out and chat and someone might come in new to a group and some people might feel not have a limiting belief that stops them from coming up to someone and just introducing themselves and saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm kind of new to the group, hello. Other people, they would never do that, right? Maybe they're... Um, Maybe that's just not necessarily a strong limiting belief, but maybe there is some shyness or not feeling okay or comfortable to do that. So it would be something to stop. If, the, if that force is up really strong, it's going to be harder to work with, even if you're aware of it, than if it's just a little bit. So, in a di so the, after we become aware of it, the next steps is, is what are ways we can do to kind of bring the intensity down? That's the other. So there's, there's learning to be free in the midst of it, and then freeing those patterns that even have those beliefs come up in the first place. So some of the really deep beliefs that we all have, you know, maybe that's just a lifelong project. Ernie, who left a little while ago, some of you know he teaches around the Bay Area and sometimes at Spirit Rock these day-long workshops on working with the inner critic. So I don't happen to have that particular version of limiting belief, but there are plenty of people who do. Okay, that whatever fuels that limit, that inner critic is is some kind of limiting belief. You know, I'm no good, or you know, we just those people who have that really can just beat themselves up mercilessly. And the problem is, they just believe it. And even if people, I've talked to people who um, have told me about this uh, when they're on meditation retreats and during the interviews. One of the problems is having is that they're so hard on themselves because they don't think they're doing it good enough, and they think every, they're comparing with everyone, judging, comparing with everyone else, and you know, and it just creates a tremendous amount of suffering. And even when they're aware of it happening, they, it, it's still going, and they still are believing it. They say, "Yes, I know it's happening," but you know that the the voice is right. I'm really not okay. I'm really not good enough. Right? So there's this, I think there's many, many layers that we have to look at, at these things because it colors our perception through the, it, it colors the filter through which we uh, can judge. So it's very, very tricky. I would propose that um, um, a simple way to, uh, to guide us in these limiting beliefs is if anything comes up that's causing us suffering, that needs some tending to. So if um, uh, if we can just pay attention to our suffering itself, that's the clue. Oh, you know, I, I've had experience is, is sitting in a group like this where I'll just be in the group, not in, not teaching, but just sitting in a group. Back when I, when I was young and just feeling horrible in the group. You know, I'm just, nobody's looking at me, but it felt as if everybody somehow <laughs> saw me and, and I was standing out like a sore thumb and I, and, it was, and I would just feel horrible about myself just, just because of being in a group. When I was in my teens and early 20s, I went through things like that. It was very painful. I knew what was going on, but I really thought there was something wrong with me. So it may be we have to work on these in a lot of different ways. Maybe we do bring the awareness practices there. You know, maybe we need to do some therapy type work too, some real healing type work, if I will. That probably could have a, a place. We have to see what's wise and skillful for all of us in these limiting beliefs. But the main thing is to just to be aware that they're there and there is such a thing and that they're mostly unconscious. And we're not going to see them until we bump up against some situation uh, in which we suffer. And rather than just being caught in our suffering and struggling, to wake up and see what, to realize, wait a minute, something's going on, our suffering's happening. I need to look at this closer. That's, that's all we, if we just keep it simple like that, I think it'll guide us. Back to Hari Das. Everything I've just been talking about is, is is kind of one level, but there's even a, another level that I think is the fuel for everything I was just talking about. 
So let me read his first sentence and I'll continue on a little further. So to repeat, he says, our lives are based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impair our ability to function. These assumptions are more than intellectual beliefs. Then he says, quote, I am a human mind in a human body. I am a human mind in a human body, unquote. In fact, this notion is so deeply rooted in our consciousness that few of us would ever think of questioning it. So he's saying even the idea that I'm a human... So this is where I'm going to lose some people here, but just stick with me. <laughs> he's saying the idea that I'm a human mind in a human body is an assumption about ourselves and the world around us that's thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impairs our ability to function. That's a pretty dramatic statement. I don't know how many of us would agree with that, but we'll explore it a little bit. And he says, um, we live our entire existence from this point of view, seeking those things, situations, and people that make us happy, and avoiding those things that make us unhappy. But even when conditions seem ideal to us, there is always that nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will eventually change that the security and happiness of the moment will ultimately be lost. In truth, we are never totally at peace. There is always something to be anxious about. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. So we should each look into our own selves and see if that's true. If it's not true for you, like all teaching, forget about it. Maybe look and see. Maybe some truth there. Then he's saying spiritual practice uh, has nothing to do with stoicism and self-denial or disregard for worldly responsibility. Spiritual practice means learning how to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. That's all. Learning to, or the way I've been saying it tonight, not at the effect of limiting beliefs more if free from them. So I want to go back to this thing he said about I'm a human mind and a human body. I don't know if I would personally have worded it quite that same way. But it goes back to this other topic which is very big in Buddhist teachings which we're only not going to get into tonight very much but of the core teachings of selflessness or no self which is a big piece. I would like to say that the notions, because normally we, most of us, all of us, don't either think to or know how to really look deeply into the, into the nature of our own being. So it's another assumption we have about who and what we are. We just, well, I'm just me. And it stops there. Well, it might be interesting, might be worthwhile to look more deeply in what is the nature of this being that I call me. Forget words about no self and all that stuff. Just You don't have to think like that. But let's just look more deeply into ourselves, which is a big piece of what happens in insight meditation practice. We turn the mindfulness into our own, you know, we think we're just watching the breath and we're being aware, but really we start to be more aware of our bodies. What do we start to see? Right? That we talk about many, many times that, um, you know, our bodies are changing. They're not fixed. They don't stay the same. They age. Right? We all know this, but um, we talk about it many, many times in the reason it's important is most of us don't spend much time, we forget about it. And then when the body inevitably changes and gets old, we suffer. We're not doing anything wrong. Not, the Buddha's not judging us for it, but he's just pointing out that as human beings, because we, it, we had this, we, we, we really fall into a trance. Limiting beliefs are a trance that we live out of and we don't know we're in a trance. It's like in the fairy tale when they cast a spell, you know, the sorcerer casts a spell, but you don't know there's a spell on you. You just see everything in a certain way. When the spell's broken, you see reality more clearly. Right? So, we start to see what's true about our bodies. We start to see that thoughts come and go, that, um, you know, everything that we 
take to be a part of ourselves is just changing, changing, changing. It's not saying it's nothing, but we misperceive what's going on, and we take it to be solid. And so a whole other level of freeing ourselves really to say, I am this, whatever it is you think you are, if you try to concretize yourself, fix yourself in some way, whether it's your body, your mind, your emotions, your, any aspect of what makes you up as a being. Anytime we try to fix that and hold to it and really believe and think, this is me, it's, it's a misperception. It's a trance that we live out of and we don't really, we don't see. And it's only a problem if we, in really getting to the core of, of all the Dharma teachings, is if it leads to clinging, right? Like, I don't know about you, Eric, but my climbing days are way past me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a young person's sport. You notice you don't see a lot of old people every once in a while, but it's sort of like running a marathon. You know, one out of 10,000, you'll see some 85, whatever, I don't know. one out of 1,000, you'll see an 80-year-old running a marathon. But it's so, so you say, yeah, but it's so unusual, they make the front page of the paper. I met Norman Clyde once. <laughs> you know, Every once in a while, there's a 90-year-old out there, and they're playing tennis, and they're going, but it's so unusual as everybody's going, wow, isn't that great? Right? So if, we're cl if, so if, if I'm, um, fortunately for me, part of the body getting too old to climb is, is that um, sort of, I don't know if your testosterone goes down or what, but just that drive to do it also went away. So for me, it's just, I don't want to get up there and get scared. And do it. But, so, but it all changed. Matter of fact, I remember once um, um, looking up at some people climbing. We had this discussion. I was in my 30s, so I was still kind of old compared to a lot of climbers, but I was climbing you know, well into my, I just actually stopped when I turned 40. Um, and um, looking up and saying, you know, you just don't see older people here. I'm already in my 30s. Everybody's younger already than me. And I said, but you know what? That's not going to be me. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to. I'm going to work out every day. I'm just going to stay on top. I'm not going to lose it. You know, if I stop and lose it, I won't get it back. I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to lose. It. I'm going to stay on it. And I just somehow I had this view that it would just kind of keep on into forever. <laughs> and you know, I just didn't. I didn't really get it. It's, it's another kind of delusion that I've, uh, it's kind of the, uh, it, this isn't the best way to say it, but it's kind of what the delusion of youth or the arrogance of youth that, that we all have mm -hmm. as human beings. Nothing, nobody's doing anything wrong. That arrogance is kind of a pejorative, so maybe that's not a good way to say it. But really, when you're young, you're out there running around, you know, you, you, you really, you could come and even be a Dharma person. You know what? You just don't get it. <laughs> you're not going to really get it until your body starts. Part of not getting it is you don't get it, you don't get it. Right. So these are, this is this teaching about a more fundamental level, I guess this is what I want to wrap up with, a more fundamental level of, of beliefs that limit us is if my limiting belief is some that I'm something, something, some fixed whatever about my body, my mind, everything, as it inevitably changes, I don't have to put no self, and I don't have to use words like that, but as the flow experience of my being inevitably changes, if I'm not able to really be at peace in that flow, I'm going to suffer, that's all. And if I can see the whole course, the whole trajectory of my life, and just rest at ease as much as you can, I don't know what, you know, I don't know if any of us are perfect to that, but hopefully we can, then um, um, you don't suffer, and you're, you're at peace, you're free. So I would say that's even a more fundamental uh, misperception or trance. I am whatever we think we are. We don't know what we are. 
<laughs> it's all happening. <laughs> but that's all we know. Anyway, um, I think I'd like to stop for tonight so we can have some time if anybody wants to either, if you have questions, that's fine, but also if you just have comments or anything you would like to add. Can I just ask, do you still have, is your still alive for you, what you want to raise your hand for? Yeah, also you, you touched on it a lot as you continued. And it's, um, what I was going to ask is, did you know that you assumed that you couldn't write a book? Yes. Or did you figure it out after a while? Well, I don't know about many, many years ago, but in recent years when, when uh, let's just put it this way, in that particular example, um, I've, I've been very aware of the whole process, I, and um, even when I'm suffering, I, I've tended to have a lot of awareness about. So I'm not making any grand claims that you know there's no you know there's plenty of areas where you know I haven't reached the end of the path, so I have my places where I suffer and get caught. But in this particular example, um, I've had a lot of awareness when it would come up, when my if you will, I get triggered or my buttons get pushed around it, and can see there's my self-esteem issue or whatever. Uh, and um, sometimes this was actually has been a lot, um, it's coming out fine now, but, but really there have been times there's been a, a lot of suffering. But the reason I ask is that I, I'd already been wondering, I mean, Buddhism in a way is a theory of mind, or it includes a theory of mind, or some theories of mind, and I wondered, does the Buddhist idea of the mind include an, a subconscious or an unconscious mind? Um, talking about assumptions that we have that we're not aware of, well, we're not, we're not conscious. That's an instance of something that's not conscious. Right. On the other hand, a lot of the, you know, very often you, you, you can see how if somebody points it out to you or you think of it yourself, it can become conscious just like that. It's not like you have to dig it out of anything. Right. On the other hand, and then, and then um, this for this, this part, it's a little easier to talk about other people than oneself. You yeah. can see other people who act as if they have certain unconscious assumptions. And if you point it out to them, they'll say they don't. Right. But it really looks like they do. Yeah. So. But none of us, we have to keep in mind, none of us can see our blind spots, as we often say. By definition, that's what makes them blind <laughs> spots, right? You know. you so if my wife kindly points something out to me <laughs> that I don't want to hear, for example, or I kindly point something out to her, for example, if either one of us are able to see it, we can say, yeah, you know what? You're right. If we don't see it, it could possibly uh, be like, you know what? Don't, don't talk to me like that. I don't deserve or whatever. Or say, I am not. Being a jerk, <laughs> and I'm right, and every, you know. So, so if I, if I and who knows? If I, so I don't. I personally, the, the places I don't see in myself, I try not to worry about that too much, because we've all got those. And if you can't see it, you can't. You can only see what you can see. I don't think you need to see more than you can see, because eventually, what needs to to be revealed reveals itself, right? So, well, but we suffer enough. I mean, if we're willing to stay tuned to, to our suffering and really use that as an ally, not as something that we're doing wrong, but really as something, uh, uh, an aid to point out where something needs to, you know, I, the way I, I'm doing it or what I, my, my attitudes or my unconscious assumptions or whatever, there's some difficulties here. Let me look closer. Um, you know, eventually we'll see. And the ones we don't see, I mean, who knows? You're like, what can you do? But that sort of suggests to me, or all this sort of suggests to me, that maybe in the Buddhist concept, having things, unconscious parts of your mind is more a matter of degree. Some things are maybe a little yeah. easier to see, and it's, like some, it's not a sort of a whole different module, like it might be in some well, Freudian theory. Right, that's exactly right. It's not a thing, right? There's not this thing, the id, that's in there or something, or whatever, superego that's in there. Because remember, that's another thing. What the Buddha is saying is that, well, first of all, you have to realize that depending on which uh, version of Buddhism you're talking about, they'll speak about, let me back up, they'll speak about mind in different ways. So if you go hang out with the Tibetans, and by the way, there's a lot of different schools of, in Tibet, so they're not all monolithic, but say, for example, or you go hang out with the Soto Zen people, 
different, they'll have different ways that they use the term mind, right? Our teaching comes out of the Pali tradition, Theravada Buddhism there, and if you go back to the Pali, the Buddha's not talking like this about, um, he, just didn't, he just didn't speak like that, about different layers to the mind. He was really talking about, when he would talk about the mind, um, there wasn't this thing there, the mind. It was really kind of a, a bunch of mental processes that include, included consciousness and perceptions and everything that's going on in the realm of what we call the mind uh, would be broken down into some little pieces and it's all arising and passing away. What the Buddha would talk about though is what's called um, conditioning of the mind. I, I use the word habit or conditionality. Mm -hmm. And it is talked about that there's a lot of, there's a lot of just conditioned patterns that have their force. And as long as those conditioned patterns are at work, they, so for example, um, I'll, give, I'll just share one of my conditioned patterns. I was talking about anger before. So a conditioned pattern I have, and it's gotten better, but it still kind of has, it's, I'm not free, is, is if I've shared here before, if, if I'm in traffic and someone's being a particularly being a jerk in traffic. Well, it's a conditioned response that comes up. I like to joke uh, that it's a good thing they don't let us carry bazookas uh, in our car, because I would have taken a few of those probably. <laughs> Hope I would really, but uh, in my mind, <laughs> because that's a triggered habitual pattern in my mind about a place where I can get angry. Now, these days, eh, not so much, and I work with it if it does come up. So I, I don't think of it that much, but uh, it'd be an example of that's a. If we could think of it as something hidden or uh, down in there deeper, but just think of it as it's a pattern, and that conditioning doesn't reveal itself unless conditions come together that triggered off. The right circumstances have to all come together and then the condition pattern reveals itself. So the Buddha would talk more about that, not so much looking at layers or parts of the mind. Okay? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to bring this up. Um, it's an interesting piece of synchronicity as I was driving up. There was, um, NPR, there was a discussion about the Dalai Lama and a statement that was made made was that he was saying something I want to just pass it on because I think it fits with what you were saying and I'm still trying to understand it that as difficult as the situation in Tibet was that he thought that freedom was still a matter of perception and attitude and belief and I'm still kind of wrestling with that one but I think it's kind of what you're saying is your belief about something is well, your limitation. I mean, personally, I don't know if you're just making a statement, if you're kind of asking. Well, I'm, I'm asking. I'm kind of passing it on and saying I'm thinking about it as a result of. Well, let me put it this way. Let's go back to an example I used earlier about is it possible to be free in prison? Well, exactly. That would be an example or. Or, or to be free or in Tibet right now. Or, or to be, is it possible to be free when Chinese have occupied my country right. and they're repressing my people or something like that? So I'll just use the prison example here. I know people, I've known people in prison, many people who are suffering terribly, understandably so, and I've known, not that many, but I've known people in prison who were among the happiest people I had ever met. And one guy came up to me in particular, this was back when I was in the mid-1970s, and I don't know how long his sentence was or whatever it was, he came up to me, but he had even at that time been a long time meditator, hours a day. And he told me he had come to a place over the years of just great peace and happiness and actually an inner joy that had come up in him. And he was happy. And he said that the uh, prison psychologist thought he was crazy. This was the problem. This was his problem. He said the real problem he's having is the prison psychologists think he's crazy because he's happy in prison. <laughs> so it certainly his happiness certainly was. Now I think he was an extraordinary person. I don't know how many people really get to that level. I mean, in, in, I'm not in prison, and I don't know how much I walk around with this, you know, that depth of joy and 
peace, but I think we've all touched some. Hopefully we're learning to live in that, out of that space more and more. Um, it certainly wasn't external circumstances. It had to be an internal state of mind. And really what, what the Buddhist teachings are, are teaching us is, is that it's all, it's ultimately, this is, this is the whole Dharma, is ultimately, it, if it's a conditional happiness, is dependent upon or conditioned by circumstances. And an unconditioned or unconditional freedom or happiness is not dependent upon circumstances. It's completely free. So then the mind of a Buddha, you know, there's no edge there. It doesn't, you know, he's, he's, he's free, he's at he's peace. So. Yeah, the interviewer slash reporter is having real trouble grasping this. Yeah, yeah. And I think for all of us, just look into our lives, like, you know, I don't know personally anyone who's, again, I use the term, you know, if we talk about a path that's leading to some end, you know, where most of us, I think, are on, there may be such a thing as enlightenment and enlightened, fully enlightened beings. I know there's some beings who, who've come to an extraordinary, they really are examples of what's, and inspirational examples of what's possible for human beings. Ajahn Junian is, is an example that some of you know from Thailand. He's just one, some of you, if you don't know him, he's a wonderful monk and, um, He's always when he goes around saying happy. He doesn't speak English, but he'll just say happy, happy, and he's smiling. And he gets his thumb. He's got a double right. He has his thumbs double jointed. He can kind of make it pop out, and he'll do it. And people say, well, why do you do that? Because oh, I just make people laugh, and he's happy. And he claims, and this was several years ago, so the, the time limit has changed. That he had when he said this, um, he said he has not experienced a single moment of anger in 25 years. And you know what? I believe him. I don't think he was, I think he was being truthful. I think he also says empty, empty. Yeah. Happy, happy, yeah. empty, empty. So Which to me is that conditional. It has nothing to do with the conditions. It's, I mean, that kind yeah. of happiness yeah. is, is free from conditions. Yeah. It's funny because the Dalai Lama also denies that he is Right. Well, he's uh, either so, a Buddha or... Well, he's, like, he's the most humble guy. He even says, well, you know, I, I'm not really... I'm, just a I'm not much of a meditator, really, and you know what? Who knows? I mean, I don't you know whether he's being humble or whether he's just tell, being truthful. You know. But the thing is, he certainly embodies some extraordinary um, um, qualities. But the other thing around all this that's very important, of course, is we've kind of gotten off on this thing of this unconditional happiness. But it goes back to um, we don't want to. We want to be careful. And yet, maybe there is this possibility of, of such a profound place of freedom that it is free of all circumstances. Even meditation. Right. Right. Well, the Buddha himself said that the Dharma, including all these practices... The last boat to be... Right. He says, you know, if you, he used the example famous of, uh, you know, if you, of the simile of the raft. If you wanted to cross this body of water, and so you put together this raft and you built it out of sticks and logs and whatever and you used your arms and legs and paddled across this water and you got safely to the other shore. It would be foolish then to put the raft on your back and carry it around with you wherever you went because it served you. And he said similarly the teachings, all the Dharma teachings and practices are meant for, he would say, for crossing over to coming to this place of whatever this is and not for clinging. It's uh, is a great example. But I just want to say it's very important that in all of this talk about where we might be able to head, uh, it's crucial, and we could spend a whole day talking about this, it's a lifetime talking about this, is that we want to be very respectful in our own lives and in the lives of others for all the places where we are affected by circumstances. You know, when we go into these, into these schools with these kids, and Lori can tell you much more than I can. She's got many years of experience in there. You know, some of these kids, you know, if they're, they're coming from places where, where they live, gunshots are part of their daily reality. One kid was talking about, you know, things that he was afraid of as having to carry a baseball bat out with them when he went out to take the garbage out. You know, if you live in that situation, you know, I don't know. Maybe there could be someone who was completely free from circumstances. But you know, that's, we want to be careful. 
that you know we don't even have to take those kind of situations. We can all look into our own lives and say, you know, until by definition, until we're completely free ourselves, um, there will, of course, we get affected by things in life, and so then it's our willingness, using the best we can, to work with situations using the best tools we have. So we're not denying that until you're, you know, until you're the next Buddha, uh, that, you know, we've got real challenges in the world, and we don't, we don't um, invalidate the real suffering and problems due to conditions. We want to change conditions when we can. Yes. Uh, I've been listening to Eckhart Tolle on Monday night, and um, a lot of what he says resonates with this teaching too. And one of them is about being in the now, because that's where you know the ego can't live in the now. Being, that's like being present and being conscious. And and to me, that's when you uh, can experience that true bliss, because you're not projecting anxiety, and you know yeah. you're just. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk on that, where if you if you know what where that correlates with Buddhism. Well, you know, it's a lot of overlap there. He uses a different terminology, and like I don't use the word ego because I would say the ego is just another misperception. There is things come together that are being called the ego. So I, I just tend not to talk like that myself, and I'm not comparing myself to him or anything like that. Um, but what I would say is just from what you just said is, I will say it a different way. To the extent we can live more in the present and be more clear and present, then we don't even have to think in terms of unconditional happiness and, and happiness dependent on conditions. None of that matters anymore. To the extent we're just present, we're mindful in the moment, then whatever's going on, we have our best chance to respond to it in the most appropriate way that's going to be the most helpful and useful for ourselves and the most helpful and useful for others. So that's this thing about being in the, in the now. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I don't know his te- I've sort of read a little bit, but I don't know his teaching in enough detail to say. But one of the things the Buddha talks about is, um, one of the reasons we practice so hard is because the idea of being in the now sounds good to me. But so, but if we just say, so let's all, you know, God, this clinging like regrets about the past just cause a lot of suffering. And worrying about the future, I mean, we want to think about the future, but worrying about it, well, it's just, yeah, that creates a lot of suffering here. Let's just sort of be here now. Okay, let's, let's okay, do sure. that. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> First thing comes along because we can't do it so easily. Because work, it works for me every time. Like well, yeah, yeah, but sure. Taking that breath during the day. Right. It's the same thing. It's, it's oh, yeah. getting present. But every time you, but that's true for all of us. Every time yeah. you remember to do it. And, and, and so then all we have to worry about is what are the things that, or, or even beyond that, if we can uh, untangle the knots of the conditioning in our minds, we don't even have to remember. Because even if you're not mindful in the moment, the reactivity that just, you're just living out of the place that's, that's, peaceful in the moment, whether you're remembering or not, because you're just not in a struggle with life. You know. So, I, again, I, I, I can't map it onto his teachings, but it's probably similar things, and really a lot of what we talk about in, in the Vipassana scene is, what are skillful means then, what are the tools in our toolkit to help us meet life and as you know, and, and live in a way that's as awake and free and loving as possible. And then hopefully not only for ourselves, but how can we also live in a way that can help others be as awake and free and clear and free from suffering as possible. And eat and how that what that looks like is going to be different for all of us. Some of us may be, you know, doing mindfulness in the schools and the prisons. Others of us may be more kind with our families. You know, there's many ways it'll, it, who knows? Let, let me ask you, let me invite everyone to take a moment, maybe you're already doing it, take a breath, and just kind of connect in with whatever yourself right now, if, if you're not. You know, there may be things that have come up as we're talking uh, that I've said or that others said that maybe feel nice and good, there might be things that you've reacted with that are 
whatever's going on with you, and just letting all of that be there, and noticing um, uh, not only what's going on in your experience, but how you're being with or relating with whatever's happening. And especially if something um, difficult or challenging has come up, uh, you know, notice if you can just sort of have some spaciousness with that or, or not, whatever's there. Sometimes we, we can't be that spacious around whatever's coming up, and so then we need some acceptance for that place where you know, we can't let go of the struggle in a moment. And then I would invite you to um, you know, just holding yourself with as much kindness and care uh, as you can. That place of self-acceptance, which is a great place of loving kindness of metta uh, towards ourselves which is really just allowing ourselves to be without having to make a problem. And then, if you would like, you could just stay with yourself, but if you would like, allowing your awareness to expand to include all the others here together in, in the room. And holding everyone here, if you can, in that same uh, spirit of and really sending out to everyone actively this that, that loving kindness, that care, or that accepting place, that open heart. And I also want to bring into the space here, uh, as many of you know, Bonnie, I think, let's see, today's Wednesday, so yesterday, Tuesday, she had her chemotherapy, first chemotherapy, and um, I don't know you know, I'm sure when she feels up to it, she'll let us know how that's going. But let just help bring her into your mind and heart, sending some of that love and care towards her. And along the same line, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, there may be others of us here who are dealing with our own challenges that maybe, for whatever reason, aren't known by others or didn't get posted out on the email broadcast list for all to know and but but maybe you know our own real challenges or difficulties or suffering and um, so to just hold everyone in your heart uh, knowing that that you know we all have sufferings and there may be some people really with some challenges uh, and if that if, if that is you really acknowledging that and um, just having some compassion for yourself in your time of difficulty. And, you know, and I didn't mention, but I know you, you all know that you, know, you can send out use some words or phrases of loving kindness if you want to. A wish, may you be happy, healthy, peaceful. If you'd like to put some words onto it. Or it can be a felt sense. And then finally, if you want to allow your awareness to expand out so it goes out beyond the room and uh, can go out to people you know, family, friends, acquaintances, out into the community, sp spreading out to the world and really radiating even beyond the boundaries of the world so that just as much as you can, that sense of, of extending kindness and a loving heart um, just in all directions everywhere. And then let us, we'll end with, uh, with dedicating the merit. So acknowledging as we've come together that we've all, every one of us, have used our time together wisely. We'll come together to spend some time uh, in silent meditation and then listening to a talk and having a discussion on you know, these areas of uh, assumptions and beliefs that we can get caught in and really reflecting on how can we live in a way that can be as wise and awake as possible and loving as possible. So any, every one of us have used our time wisely this evening. So to have some appreciation for that, first of all, in yourself. 
And then also to recognize that any time we um, practice in this way, it's of great benefit to ourselves and for all those around us, for other beings. And in fact, it's uh, knowing that it's not possible to practice for ourselves alone. And so let us offer up if there's been any merit, you could say any goodness, any good qualities, any positive energy, if you will, that's come about from our time together. Let us offer it up. May it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful. And may all beings everywhere come to an end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.